We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're talking to Jason Damien Hill, Professor Hill, who is the author of the new book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. Dr. Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Emily. It's a pleasure to be here. Professor Hill, uh, thank you. And and I want to ask you, first of all, about the title of your book, because the title of the book is pretty provocative um, and clarifying, I think. But I'd, I'd like if you just sort of walked us through why you decided to go with this title and, and what it sort of encompasses when it comes to the book. Right. Well, we live in an age of entitlement, and uh, there is an H.R. 40 movement, I call it a movement that's going through Congress right now, which speaks to the issue of reparations. You know, Cal- the Governor Newsom has signed a reparations law in California. Um, I think Florida has one such law. And, and in North Carolina, there are rep- reparative um, gestures that are being made. So I think reparations is really going to become the next big thing in America. And for me, I wanted to explain to the, I wanted to give intellectual ammunition to our American citizens to have them understand that reparations really, Emily, it is a rapacious expansionist appropriative doctrine that is meant to advance the welfare state to usher in socialism. Hmm. Our country is advancing towards a really, really dangerous form of socialism and i say dangerous because you know there's a form of socialism that you have in denmark and sweden that seems benign ours is is really heading towards a diehard marxist communist form of socialism and the form of reparations that is being spearheaded in america today is one that trades on white guilt and one that profits from every conceivable form of black suffering every comorbidity that's associated with diabetes with hypertension, with cancer, with COVID, is traceable back to some kind of residual effect of slavery. Hmm. So I wanted to give, I wanted to write a book that would trace the history of actually black freedom that was founded in 1776. I get into the civil rights movement. I actually get into the founding of this country and, and his, his history buffs are going to love this book because I get into debates between Abram Lincoln, our late great president and chief justice um, Otani, who was not for the inclusion of blacks and Lincoln certainly was for inclusion of blacks in the Republic. And I get into the 1964 civil rights act and show how it was a a a eugenical moment in history where whites were being socialized, not to be racist. And I talk about the revolutionary studies, black studies and Chicano studies and gay and lesbian studies and women's studies and how these studies led up to critical race theory, um, cancel culture, all of which the reparations movement feed upon. Yeah, there's so much to break down from that. I have a million different um, questions to to ask. I want to start because I think it might be helpful with also saying, so you're a professor at DePaul, but you're also the author of We Have Overcome, an Immigrant's Letter to the American People. And I think the progression from that book mm-hmm. to this one is so interesting. So if you could also tell us a little bit about what you what you wrote in that first book and how you led it to this project, how it led you to this project, that would be great. 
Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a legal immigrant, came from Jamaica at the age of 20, and then subsequently became an American citizen um, about, about 20 years ago and fell in love with this great country as a child growing up in Jamaica. Actually, I wanted to become um, an American from as far back as I can remember. My mother, I had the opportunity to go to Switzerland because I have family from there. And I said to my mother, no way, I want to come to America because it's, it's the greatest country on earth. So I'd been in America for a long time and working as a stodgy academic, writing three academic books. And, but also I, I wanted to be, I was trained as a journalist and I'd been writing these pieces. Then Ta-Nehisi Coates came up with this book called Between the World and Me, which I read and I was horrified. Mm -hmm. Emily, I was horrified by what I read. He, the, the sort of invectives that were being thrown against my beloved country just I couldn't take it anymore and I began to realize that I was living in what I call an age of America phobia where this country was called an intrinsically bigoted racist country where racism was seen as part of the political DNA of this country that blacks the American dream was dead so I wrote this article that went viral and I, I was given the chance to write we have overcome which really explains it was a love letter to the American people, dedicated to the American people, explaining what was exceptional about America, why I thought it was the most moral country on the face of the earth, why the American people were the most exceptional people, having traveled to now 45 countries in my life, why the American people are the most exceptional people, and to explain in very clear terms what's great about this country. And to tell the story of immigrants such as myself who came here with very little, I came here with $120 in my pocket. And thanks to my mother who, and my grandmother who made it possible for this passage and worked my way up, worked for 45 hours a week to put myself through school and then won a scholarship to do my PhD. And it was a very, you know, it was a letter, a book of, a letter, a love letter of gratitude to America for having brought me where I am. Because I got sick and tired of this, 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 this hatred against America of, of people within this country wanting to ex destroy it. So it's really, I would say, that what do white Americans or black people is a way of showing how the idea of pathogens that suffuse this country, which I, in a very broad way, dealt with in the in my fourth book, we have overcome. In this book, I took a few idea pathogens, critical race theory, cancel culture, reparations, and attack them head on. Just, just really sort of analyze them, show the historical antecedents, where they came from, how they arose. And so whereas we have overcome is sort of like a, just a gushy, not, it's not gushy because I really take <laughs> on the educational system where I call our universities cults and call for the defunding of the universities in this country because they're not learning centers, they're ideological bastions of indoctrination. I did that and we have overcome. Um, and I sort of more get into very detailed analyses of what I call the revolutionary studies or the victim studies in, 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 in what do white Americans or black people. So uh, this, this new book is a more detailed analysis of some of the things that I had just mentioned were left-wing um, orthodox doctrinaire Marxists whom I just mentioned and we have overcome. I sort of really take them on in great detail in this book and show how they're wa waging a war. The left is waging a war against this country. Um, so that's my more detailed analysis <clears throat> that I undertake in this book.
There's an interesting question about why um, some Black Americans' voices are completely like the, they just turn down the volume on those voices and crank up the volume on the Nicole Hannah Jones of the world. But what's also interesting is that, it, as you say, there's a measure of indoctrination that happens in our a measure. There's an enormous measure of indoctrination that happens in our, our system of higher learning here in the United States. And I'm wondering why um, you think that resonates with um, some members of the black community and obviously with all, so many members of the sort of elite white academic community. But why do some uh, black Americans have a, a takeaway from their experience in this country that's more similar to yours as opposed to more similar to the Nicole Hannah Jones of the world? Why does that sort of very fundamentally pessimistic glass half empty take on uh, black freedom, as you say, why does that why does that resonate with some more than others? Well, I think that they have been indoctrinated since the 1960s when through the Lyndon Johnson great pro war on poverty and the great society program where, you know, before the 1960s civil rights movement, and I'm not against the civil rights movement, obviously, but there's a dark period in the civil rights movement where the welfare state became the surrogate husband's of many black women and black women became incentivized to have more children and, and paradoxically black fathers became disincentivized to take care of their children. So we had the breakup of the black family and somehow the agency of black people in general became expropriated by a managerial white bourgeois class that said, you can't take care of yourself. Your agency is crippled. You're really deep down inside worthless we'll take care of you and we'll take care of you by from cradle to grave um, being fiscally responsible for you and for the mm. reproductive choices that you've also made. You see, I, I've spoken to a lot of people in research for this book um, who grew up on the Jim Crow, who thought that accepting welfare would have been beneath them, beneath their dignity. Yes. And we had after the, the, the darker phase of the civil rights movement, a number of blacks who bought into this entitlement. Well, the whole country has become an entitlement culture and a culture of aggrievement, which is so un-American, um, and have bought into this cult, cult of entitlement. And plus, you know, around race, a whole set of cottage industries have sprung up where it pays to be a victim. You know, we're, I'm seeing this among the Z-Gen. I'm very protective of my students because they're young and their brains are still developing. Mm -hmm. But you see that just to be just to be offended, just to have your feelings offended, pays. You're stamped with the imprimatur of innocence. Um, you are you are you are awarded all kind of accolades, moral accolades, just to call yourself a victim. You get a lot of social attention. You get a lot of moral attention. Um, this has arisen, I think, quite interestingly from the demonization of reason and logic and the prioritization of feelings and emotions um, that have superseded reason and logic. And I think to answer your question, blacks are just part and part of a, a, a microcosm of a bigger macrocosmic um, phenomenon that has arisen in this country. And the other thing is that they've never been offered a real alternative. You know, I think I'm a conservative independent, but I think conservatives have not really done, Emily, a good job of explaining in simple terms 
reminding Blacks of the rich cultural heritage that they had mm. that allowed them to survive during slavery, that allowed them to survive, which is not a call to go back to slavery, not a call to go back to Jim Crow. But during the hardships, they were at their best when white people were treating them were at their worst. Mm. To remind them of the values that they hold, the conservative values that they hold, our American values. I think conservatives could do a much better job of explaining to black people that self-reliance, self-responsibility, um, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps to the best of your ability. We all need each other's help in certain ways. But self-accountability, you're being responsible for your, for your fate, that these speak to your dignity. And I think that the conservatives have basically ceded that to the left and just said, you know, Hmm. Blacks yeah. are owned by the left, and and we don't really stand the chance of convincing them. So they've never been really offered a robust alternative. Right. That's interesting because you said earlier that 1776 was the year that Black freedom was founded. And I wanted to ask you how you make that argument in the 1619 climate when uh, the point about sort of 1776 actually being being the founding of the the codified um, institutional slavery in the United States of America, that's sort of the, the date. And the, there is a, an utterly pessimistic take that I think has deviated greatly from uh, the Frederick Douglass, you know, what to the slave is the 4th of July take. Um, how do you explain that today in, in 2022? Well, I ostensibly point to people like Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And I say, look, what is the moral language that they use to defend the inalienability of black people during the civil rights movement? It's the language of 1776. First of all, there's no mention of race in the in the, 17, in, the in our constitution at all, um, and the Declaration of Independence, the, the Constitution, use the inalienability clause, the rights of man, that all men are created equal. It's just that we had two societies running concurrently against each other. There was one part, and I go into great. I mean, think that's why I think history buffs are going to like the book because I go into great detail to show that there were two parallel societies. You had the, Link, the, the, peop, the, the, the party of Lincoln and the people of, of the Quakers and the conscientious objectors, and then you had the, the, white, the white supremacists who basically did not want blacks to be part of the republic. Um, not just the Quakers, you had people who, who genuinely, people like even like Jefferson, who, although he owned slaves, had a very divided consciousness, who really did, in deep in his heart, want to wrote wrote the declaration with blacks in mind one day being part of the republic so our founding was forged with the idea that one day blacks would be part of the republic and it's interesting that when martin luther king and the civil rights leaders used the the, the, the moral language of emancipation they don't create new language they realize that they are the legatees of 1776 and invoke that moral language and demand that the promise be carried through. So when I say the, 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 the foundations of black freedom were forged in the crucibles of this great document, I mean it quite seriously. I mean that you, we have to hold the truths of the document as they stand and not by those who betrayed 
Yeah. The document itself. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. I, I actually want to ask you about a, uh, this, this, this is kind of a deep cut, uh, although it shouldn't be. I was, and I'm only asking because I was reading this uh, just a couple of hours ago before we started talking. Uh, Catherine McKinnon has this essay that I'd never actually read um, where she sort of lays into postmodernism, um, you know, this, this radical feminist in the year 2000 laying into postmodernism. And she has this great line in it where she said, postmodernism's analysis of the social construction of reality is stolen from feminism and the left, but gutted of substantive content, producing Marxism without the working class, feminism without women. And I think you can then extend it to say anti-racism without the anti-racism. And I want to ask uh, whether you agree with that sort of line of argumentation that postmodernism actually guts the uh, these philosophies that purport to protect disenfranchised people of their actual protection. <laughs> um, and and then why you think postmodernism, why, why are we not? You think postmodernism is a sort of central culprit in this evolution? Well, no, I think... I, I mean, I understand what McKinnon is saying, but I don't know that I agree with her entirely because I think postmodernism is a nihilistic um, doctrine that goes against all the values of the Enlightenment principles. It goes against the idea that there's an objective reality that we can know and perceive. It questions the centrality of reason as our primary means of cognition, of knowing things. It destroys the idea that there is an autonomous knowing subject it, um, it, 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 it questions the idea that that truth is honest, that, that there is truth, first of all. So it, it sort of advances a perspectivalism and a radical subjectivity, which has given rise to this notion that we all live in our own little curated silence and that there is my truth and there is your truth and that there are no objective um criteria that can adjudicate among truth claims. So I see like these revolutionary studies that I've talked about um, as the unruly stepchildren of postmodernism, that postmodernism, when I think of postmodernism, I think of little children who go around kicking down sandcastles that other people have built without any mechanism for rebuilding them. It, it, it's, it's deconstruction Postmodernism and deconstruction go hand in hand. So I, I understand why she would would think that way, but I think that postmodernism is highly destructive and, and it goes hand in hand in some sense with critical race theory in the sense that when critical race theory claims that systemic racism suffuses every single institution, um, postmodernism gives us no critical tools to... Um, to no rejoiners because postmodernism makes the is, is a culturally relativistic doctrine because it says that all truth claims are equal are equal and that there is no way to adjudicate among truth claims and declare one better than the other. So the critical race theorist who says our institutions are suffused with racism that we're no better off than we were during Jim Crow by the logic of postmodernism, you'd have to see that argument. And if I said I disagree, um, that we're much better off that our that our America is no longer a white supremacist country, which I don't think we are any longer, and that systemic racism doesn't suffuse 
all our institutions, the postmodernists would then have to see you see my argument. So it's it's you see what I'm saying? It's it's so yeah. relativistic <laughs> that um um it, it ends in pure pure chaos and 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 subject radical subjectivity. Yeah, and it's really interesting to read that from McKinnon in 2000 because she's also saying, you know, you can't you, you can't criticize power um, with it, with a postmodern lens because you have to deny the sort of uh, centrality of power, the existence of power. If everything is sort of relative, um, then you're you're not going to make much sense. And that kind of gets to this other question about postmodernism, the morally relative worldview that so many people have. And I'm sure that you experience in your classroom, students just sort of don't know um, basic, they, they don't trust basic reality because they haven't been taught to even basics like men and women um, mm -hmm. and, and black and white and whatever else. It's, it's difficult, um, especially for young people. Do you see that as being something, because you mentioned the 1960s earlier, and I think for good reason, um, and even the sort of Constitution Declaration of Independence were, were downstream of the Enlightenment, which was in and of itself be kind of something that happened post-printing press because technologies were allowing us to communicate and relate to each other in different ways. Do you think some of this is, is sort of a, the byproduct of this rapid um, technological advancement that we've had that sort of just has, you know, you have the declaration that God is dead and, uh, you know, suddenly we're in this very postmodern, morally relative world. Is there any, do, do you agree with that at all? That's something I talk about a lot, but I'm curious as somebody who actually uh, teaches philosophy, <laughs> Mm -hmm. if, if you see any of that in the, the development of where we are now? Well, partially, because I think when our, when, our, when our cognitive apparatus is bombarded with so many stim so much stimuli um, and there's no way to parse, parse it with the kind of a, a particular method of cognition, we either fall into a kind of paralysis or we fall into a kind of radical subjectivity where we, we just say, okay, I'm going to block out any competing evidence that stands in contradistinction to what I've already held on to as my truth. So in the, in the, in the, in the, the days before massive technology where you didn't have so much, you weren't bombarded by so much stimuli and so, so, many, so much competing information, um, you were sort of limited in how you you parse through material, um, but I think that Emily, part of the problem is that we have so many experts today, <laughs> along with so many technological configurations and so many people claiming to be experts, in the absence of criteria to hold them accountable to their expertise. I mean, you just look at the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's just mm. talk, we can just talk about that for a second. And the, you, you can't be right and wrong at the same time. So you've got Fauci and you've got a lot of other people claiming to be experts, giving, giving us very contradictory information from mask wearing to vaccines to boosters. And you've got scientists in Sweden saying s certain things about herd immunity, and then you've got a Fauci saying the exact opposite and other people saying. And one of the things that, that struck me as someone who does teach philosophy of science 
uh, it's not my specialization. I just boned upon it for nine years because they asked me to teach. And I said, you got to give me about three years to, to, <laughs> to develop some, some sort of competency in it. I think that part of the problem, I think you're right, is that we are bombarded with a lot of stimuli from, 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 from the world, from, from the internet, from these technological configurations. But, but another problem that I see arising is the problem of expertise in science and in, 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 in various um, discipline domains. And if you just take COVID-19, for example, right, if you look at Fauci and you look at um, scientists from Israel, scientists from Sweden, there's an absence of consensus among these scientists about what constitutes objective evidence, about what constitutes um, objective evidence pertaining to how the disease, the virus is contracted, how it's spread. Um, and part of this problem is that criteria that was once objective and um, unilaterally accepted among many scientists, those criteria become so heavily politicized. And in the absence of a consensus and agreement among scientists that you can't have scientists in Sweden saying, we achieve herd immunity this way, and Fauci saying this is ridiculous, and other scientists saying, well, it could be this way or it could be that way. You leave, you leave people, you leave each man or woman really fighting for him or herself in terms of making decisions that before one would just rely on scientists to make to help one make those decisions so it's not just that we're bombarded with a lot of stimuli when also reason and logic are themselves criminalized as the creation of white imperialist racists and we have a sort of suspicion against the experts who are using logic and reason and when objectivity itself is being called into question as it is nowadays um, we are at a tremendous loss in terms of functioning as autonomous, sovereign subjects who can rely on experts who are not really there to tell us what to do. They're there to aid our thinking process and guide it towards um, not committing the errors that we're prone to commit. That's what experts, part of what experts do. They don't really tell us what to do. They tell us what to do indirectly by making sure that the fallacies in our thinking or the misguided efforts that are guided by our own fault, faulty ways of thinking, we're not going to commit because they are experts in certain fields of knowledge that will help us, that, we've, that we, will, we are guided by. And this is just not the case because they themselves have been so politicized in their own thinking and their thoughts. You know, it's really, uh, let's tell you, it's so interesting to think about how the the victim and sort of entitlement and mentality that you critique and write so much about, um, I'm curious as to why you believe that's the one um, that caught traction in the 20th century to the point where it now seems to define um, what we're taught as all Americans about the black experience in this country. Um, and in addition to that question is how how central is the entitlement program it's 
itself, um, from welfare to all of the different, you know, state local entitlements that have been parceled out since the the 1960s. What what kind of effect have those had um, on on the black community itself, and also just even in the sort of philosophical conception of the black experience here? Well, I think it's had a very deleterious effect on the black community because what it has done is set sent a very direct message to blacks across this country that you're worthless, that you are helpless, that there's something congenitally, constitutionally, biologically inferior vis-a-vis yourselves and whites in terms of taking care of yourself. Why is it that rural, working class, poor white people are held to be responsible for themselves, that they can make it, that they can put their families through school, um, I have taught at five different universities. I've taught at, you know, taught white ch- kids from the cornfields of Indiana to Purdue mm-hmm. University. Why is it that those parents can send their children through school, can be, th- um, you know, frugal? But when it comes to black people, we have this idea that they are somehow congenitally inferior. So it's, it had a very deleterious effect, and I think in eroding the self-esteem of blacks and it, it's very has been very eviscerative of their dignity um but politically i think also it's just a way of buying votes you know mrs mm. clinton and in, in the, in the when i never forget when her her run for the senatorship in in new york she turned up with a whole bucket of fried chicken um mm-hmm. thinking that she could mm-hmm. boo these black people especially these black women into voting for her it's it's disrespectful so you know, these Democrats talk to black people every four years when they need their votes. And um, and I think it is you, you can no longer talk about the far left. The far left is not the, the Democratic Party of America. So I think it's part, again, of a socialist agenda that the more the, the louder your entitlement claim, the more we expand the welfare state to accommodate those claims. And like I said, when, I, when we started our conversation about reparations, that I think reparations is nothing more than a stealth, a stealth move. It's like Trotsky's never-ending revolution. The, the louder your entitlement claim, the louder you claim to be your suffering to be at the hands of bigoted white people, which is everyone who has white skin, by the way. And so if everyone has white skin, that means everyone has white privilege by the logic of CRT, and then everyone is a systemic walking practitioner of racism, then we're just going to expand the welfare state um, completely. And the more black people vote for the Democratic Party, um, then we have a rapacious, expansionist, appropriative welfare state that will lead to a very nefarious form of socialism. So the entitlement program is a very, very mm, circuitous way of getting to the welfare state because, well, I am convinced that black people are eventually going to wake up one day and realize that they're being used as pawns to, because I don't think most black people are socialists at heart when they really realize what socialism entails. I think most black people want to be property owners I think they want less, fewer taxes, less, you know, I think they want their children to go to good schools. And this is what I think. If, if, if conservatives could sit down with black people and say, wouldn't you like to have that portion of your taxes that you could send your child to a charter school or to a, 
be offered school choice or voucher for education. Wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want small businesses to be taxed at a far lesser rate so that they can then employ you and that even if we made certain concessions with small businesses and tax them less and provide mentorship programs between your children and them, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want an abolition, uh, right, an abolition of the income tax or a portion of your taxes that you can send? All these things, if, if, if conservatives would sit down with blacks and say, wouldn't you want this? If I could show you that the teacher's union is really getting in the way of your child's education and have these heart-to-heart -heart conversations, almost like fireside chats with our town hall meetings, I think most black people realize that I have conservative values. My values are conservative. Right. It's interesting. It's, it's just interesting to hear, these, hear you say that because um, it, it's a very optimistic take. And it's one that almost seems to some degree to be in process over the last couple of years. And, and maybe you disagree with that, too. I'm, I'm also curious. But even just with Kanye West um, and the, the effect that he's had, we're actually literally seeing this translate into numbers. Um, and it's early, of course. But Joe mm -hmm. Biden's approval rating is horrible, horrible, mm -hmm. specifically mm -hmm. among black Americans. Um, and we see that in even Republican support among black Americans just creeping upward very, very slowly and, and marginally, but more than it has in, in other time intervals. Is this afoot right now at all? I, I believe so. And I think the more people see people, I'm not a celebrity, but um, I am a public intellectual. And the more people can see people such as myself speaking, not disrespectfully, not condescendingly about black people, acknowledging them as people with great resolve, great reserve, great per persistence, wanting a bit of the American dream but admitting that they have bought into an entitlement program and that they are better than that, that the Democratic Party has held them down, has given them a shoddy education through, a, through, through the public's, through a K through 12 shoddy public educational system, and that the other side, um, if they promise them tax exemptions, um, abolition of that portion of their income, that they would send their children to school, charter schools, tax voucher for education, school choice, all the things that they want for their children um, and open up a vast set of opportunities for them, not giving them handouts and explaining to them why reparations really would make them economic supplicants and mendicants of the state and that, that they're better than that that, 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 that is robbing them of their dignity in an honest way and speak to them with respect. And I think Kanye, not always a big fan when I'm not a fan of his music, but <laughs> but but I think in that respect, he he really he really was doing something quite quite wonderful. Uh, we might see some changes. We just might see some changes because people know when they're being hoodwinked and conned. Right. It does seem like some of this has happened over the course of the the debate on critical race theory, which is something that you've, of course, been familiar with the for, for much longer than a lot of people who heard the term for the first time um, over the last couple of years. And then suddenly uh, took over our, our discourse um, for good reason, uh, of course. Now, we're considering literally as we're talking, the Supreme Court nominee uh, is, is being considered in the Senate, uh, Katanji Jackson 
and she's a fan of Derek Bell's. Uh, Derek Bell is somebody who you've, of course, studied very closely. Um, how do you define, because this is sort of the left's sticking point that they use to uh, debunk the, the rights and the center's complaints about critical race theory. How do you define critical race theory? Their definition is, is so ridiculous that they say it's not being taught to young children because it could only be taught to law students. And it's like, well, that's the problem is you're teaching something that should only be taught to law students to five-year-olds. Um, but how's the, what do you think the best definition is? Well, there are three iterations of it. I mean, there was the 1970s definition that Derek Bell gave that applied to legal studies. And there was a 1990s iteration. And that the current iteration is very, very pernicious and nefarious. It's one that claims critical that race is a social construct. I see no problem with that. I mean, there are scientists out there who will say that race is a, if you look over the centuries, the racial taxonomies have changed so drastically. The Irish were not considered white at one time. Jews became white out of the Civil War. That's fine. But they also argue that race is, that America is a bigoted, intrinsically bigoted country and that race is endemic and ineradicable, ineradicable from America, that racism suffuses all our institutions, irredeemably so, rather, that's not the word I should say, irrevocably so, that They've added on something that I don't think I've read in Bell that all white persons enjoy are conferred white privilege by just by virtue of being white. And that in being white, they are unconsciously or consciously um, the practitioners of systemic racism. So it's an inverse form of racism. Um, that <clears throat> racism permeates every aspect of from cradle to from birth to from cradle to to death i should say that racism infiltrates and affects every black person's life in a very deleterious way um emily part of the problem with critical race theory today is that they offer no real conceptual definition of racism, of critical race theory. They make, the, they've, they've altered the definition that Derek Bell gave um, to make it so amorphous and so vague that when you have a white child, which I open up my book, a white child putting his hand beside a, the teacher has demanded that all the white children put their hand beside a brown paper bag Mm -hmm. And the black kids are exempt from it. And the teacher says to the white children, if your hand, if your skin color is different from the brown paper bag, you're part of a problem. And the problem is called systemic racism, which you are a participant of because of your skin color. And that you're, you've harmed every, every black child in, in the country, including all the white children in this country. And that's a form, that's, a, that's an act, activist, activist form of, critical race theory. So critical race theory, even going back to Derek Bell, has always had an activist component to it. Now, critical race theory will say that's not critical race theory. Yes, it's an applied form of critical race theory. So it has become much more less theoretically oriented and much more impl implement, implementation oriented. Yeah. 
That's a, that's a really interesting way to think about it. At what point do you think, and, and maybe you don't agree with this either, but at what point do you think that um, racism went from being systemic in America to no longer being systemic? Or what would the point, what, what would that marker look like? Because it's, I mean, legally, obviously we've eradicated, you know, we, we, we have eradicated racism from the legal sort of documentation and we have the Civil Rights Act of 1964, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also also hard to understand how black families um, who actually were doing better off before the uh, the Great Society program, but nevertheless started with significantly less wealth in this country than uh, many white families, um, are not still being harmed by that to some extent. Maybe you disagree with that too. But how do we sort of define what constitutes systemic racism um, or what doesn't? Well, there is racism that still exists in this country. I mean, and there will always be racism because in a free society, you cannot stop people from holding psychotic, stupid belief. And as Shelby, the great <laughs> Shelby Steele, who's, who's a friend of mine, said, uh, there will always be stupid people. And that's what racism is. It's looking at someone's morphological characteristics. I have brown skin, have a certain hair texture, and, uh, and, and, and attributing certain characteristics to my character because of my morphological and my phenotype. So people always hold those beliefs and they're stupid people. And sh so long as they don't violate my bodily integrity, they're, they're free to hold their beliefs in a free country. We prioritize liberty and freedom over people's metaphysical beliefs. Now, when did systemic racism end? I argue, I have a whole chapter on the 1964 Civil Rights Act and I call it a, 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 a moral eugenics moment in this country because it said to white people, you cannot use your living, your business as an extension of your living room or as an extension mm. of yourself. You cannot use your property to, to, you cannot use and dispose of it as you feel like it. So it was eugenical in that it was re-socializing the sensibilities of white people and saying, of racist white people and saying, you can't be racist anymore. If you're racist, you can be sued by a black person. Your place of business is, is going to be treated like a public utility. And if you dare to discriminate and that discrimination can be proven by a black person, you're, you're breaking the law. Racism is now illegal. It illegalized racism. So when you say that racism is systemic, you have to ostensibly show that racist policies are part and parcel of an institution's culture, practices, and there might be a there might be some organizations that still function that way. Uh, if they do, blacks certainly have redressed to the law. And there have been cases in which that is the case and blacks have sued in court and have gotten those companies in deep, deep waters, deep trouble. But once you have laws on the book that make racism illegal in the academic sphere, in the corporate sphere, in, among small businesses, one is very, very hard pressed. And so long as you do not have laws, as we certainly did have, have on the Jim Crow's, that are punitive of blacks for the sole reason, for no other reason than that they are black, which we do not have anymore. We do not have laws that are punitive and directed at blacks because they are black. Um, we might have a higher prison population of blacks because speaking in terms of percentage, blacks constitute 30% of the 
population 12 or 13, but commit more something like over 70% of the crimes in this country. We simply mm -hmm. have a more criminogenic um, uh, percentage of blacks than we do in black in, in black communities than we in white communities. Black blacks commit more crimes against whites and against other blacks than do whites commit crimes against both whites and blacks. That's a horrible, tragic issue, but you cannot fudge the facts. That is simply the truth. Um, so I think that every single disparity and asymmetry also that exists between the races cannot be causally traceable back to racism. Some of it can, but again, <clears throat> without trespassing on the individual rights of people, the only thing that a free and just society can do is to make sure that there are no laws, that there are no um, obstructions in the way of Blacks, that Blacks put towards enhancing their well-being. If we go any further than the 6th to 4 Civil Rights Act, the 1970, the, the equal, um, the, e the Equal Opportunity Act of 1972, um, and the affirmative action programs that were initiated, which I think were a good thing when they started. I mean, we, they were necessary given the horrific um, actions in, against the history of atrocities against black people. I think expiration date has come, and one could argue with that, and I, I'd be willing to see that, okay, we, let's continue with them, but I think their expiration date um, has arisen, um, but short of the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 19, on the Equal Employment Opportunity Act of 1972, the affirmative action programs, that to go any further, you run the risk of transgressing on the rights of people. The 64 Civil Rights Act was already a breach of private property. I argue in my book that it was a justifiable breach because contextually, the state had colluded with so many whites in violating the rights of black people that contextually it was it was necessary to 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 right a wrong that had been committed now that breach in the rights of private property uh, cannot continue in perpetuity um, racism is already illegal and um, so long as we live in a free society that creates no obstructions for blacks to pursue their inalienable rights. Um, it is not the job, I think, of the state, really, and I, I'm probably a little bit extreme here, but it is not the job of the state to, even among whites or intraracially, to reduce disparities. Why? Because when we start talking about equity movements, we're getting into some serious issues here. We're not all equal. We're not all equally intelligent. I'm not the e I'm not the athletic equal uh, equal <laughs> of my countryman Usain Bolt, the fastest <laughs> man in the world. We're not e we're not equally equally beautiful. We're not all equally intelligent. We're not all equally moral. We're not all equally frugal. So, and we're not all equally equal in values. And how do you redistribute values? Which mm -hmm. you know. So, so some people have different values which determine the outcome of their lives. So you can't redistribute values and you can't redistribute 
the unequal endowments of nature and what we do with the endowments that we have. Right. So, right. But you can have the American Constitution and, and Bill of Rights, which, as you write about, um, are, are, you know, as close as humanity has ever gotten. And on that note, before we run, Professor Hill, I want to ask you um, to all of the, the young people and actually older people alike who have become so pessimistic and a word you use in the title of another one of your books, nihilistic, um, about this country, um, if you're stuck in an elevator going up 20 stories with one of these people, what's your elevator pitch to them uh, about why this country is is a wonderful place, um, if not the best place that, uh, that has ever graced this earth in terms of, uh, on the scale at least, for mm-hmm. uh, a, a human being to live? It's an unprecedented phenomenon. It's, a, it's against the backdrop of other countries that have based citizenship and, and residency and belonging on on, on, on blood and lineage, America is the first country in history that has said, we don't care where you come from. And this wasn't always the case in America. You know, we had, we had various iterations where you had to sort of, and we've had quotas and so it's always been a work in progress, but it's basically, it, we don't care where you come from. We don't care what religion, what background, ethnic background, we just care, destiny. we don't care about your past, we care about where you're going forward. And that is a great unprecedented phenomenon in the sense that America is the only country in which you can rewrite the accidents of your birth and create a future for yourself. Hmm. And uh, it is exceptional in the sense that you can reverse the accidents of your birth, which, which, which might have placed you in a position of misfortune and become something heroic and make something remarkable of your life. Not very many countries give people the opportunity to act like a god and to restylize their lives into something remarkable. This country gives people the opportunity to remake and make something amazing of their lives and to achieve the dreams, to pin their aspirational identities on something Mm -hmm. amazing and to pin one's aspirational identities on a dream in a country that then gives you the opportunities to realize that dream is a very, very, very rare phenomenon. And that's what right. America does. That's absolutely beautiful. Um, and you've been so generous with your time. Uh, we'll have to have you back sometime to talk about your book on Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, uh, because I have plenty of questions about that as well. Uh, th- oh, this book you. is, it's, it's We Have Overcome. Oh, I'm sorry. I read the title of the last book. <laughs> uh, what's the title of the new book and where can people buy it? Title is What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. The best place you can get it for a wonderful discount is on Amazon. Um, and people can follow me on Twitter at my handle is at Jason D Hill six. I I'm getting into tweeting. I should have more followers, <laughs> but I really don't spend a lot of time tweeting every day, but I tweet every other day. So That's you can get it on, um, you can get it on Amazon. That's a good amount to tweet uh, every other day. Keep it <laughs> keep it at a distance a little bit. Right. Uh, uh, Professor Jason Hill, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Emily. It was a pleasure. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you uh, follow Dr. Hill's work and go follow him on Twitter as well. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. 